Thank you, Sarah. Oh, not on there. Where we are now, I'm on. Good morning. Thank you, Sarah, for those announcements. Uh, don't forget the resurrection prayer guys. We've got a stack of those at the back of the room. We've got one of those to show you here. Um, we're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, we've put some Bibles under the chairs there, so you can grab one of those Bibles. We should be around page 880. It's Luke chapter 21. The series in the last chapters of the Gospel of Luke we're calling the last days of Jesus. The last days of Jesus. Um, most of the Gospels spend a lot of time focusing on this last week where Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He has these kind of last teachings, last confrontations with the Jewish leaders before he is crucified and before the resurrection as the, the climax and the big focus of the Gospel of Luke. So the last days of Jesus, Jesus inaugurated as king through his death and resurrection for us. This week we're calling it The World As We Know It. Uh, the World As We Know It. Uh, you might hear a little echo if you're an 80s rock and roller like me. Um, there was a song in the 80s, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. You remember that one? R.E.M. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. And my question is like, but do you really? Like, really, are you fine? Like, is nihilism, is sex, drugs, and rock and roll just going to make it all okay when everything falls apart? Um, I can remember uh, when my world fell apart, uh, the world as I knew it. I was five years old. My folks sat me down. And they're like, okay, we're splitting up. We're going to get a divorce. Dad's not going to live here anymore. But you know what, kids? It's going to be fine. It's just it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. It's like, is it really? Like, is it really going to be Okay. I can remember talking to other kids on the playground for years as an elementary school student, you know, growing up, and it would kind of come up in conversation. Yeah, my folks aren't together, but I mean, it's fine, right? Like, it was the 80s, so it was becoming more and more common. It was coming, becoming more and more normal. But I kept saying that, like, it's fine. It's okay. It was almost like it was my job to calm down my friends. Like, it's okay. And it wasn't until my teen years and then really when I became a Christian where I was like, oh, wow, it's not okay, <laughs> right? Like, everything fell apart, and this is not okay. And so... I think when we think about broader perspective now, take, take a deep breath. Y'all are all freaked out because I just shared something really personal. <sighs> it's, it's fine, okay? <laughs> um, bigger picture, we see things falling apart all around us, right? And it causes a lot of anxiety. Like our, our world, not just our nation, but our world is, is feeling a lot of anxiety as, as the world as we know it is falling apart. And it's terrifying. And so at one level as Christians, we have to be more honest than everybody and say, it is not fine, this is not okay, this is not fine. Everything is falling apart, right? Like we have to have a prof proper sort of freak out about things falling apart. Bad things happening, we have to be like, that's bad. But also Jesus gives us this unconquerable confidence in him. He says, in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so as Christians, we walk this line of it is not fine, but you know what? In a supernatural way, in Jesus, it is fine. It's finer than it's ever been because Jesus is Lord, because Jesus is on the throne, because God is sovereign. It is going to be okay. And so as Christians, that's, that's the balancing act we walk. It's like, yeah, things are terrible, but you know what? I'm, things are cool because Jesus rules, right? And so that's what we're going to see in this passage. We're going to see him prophesying some really terrible things that were going to happen in the near term and also hard things in the long term. And he's going to say, just trust me, trust me, right? Like the world as you know it is ending, but trust me, it's, it's going to be okay. Trust that I'm in control 
So let's read. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, as I said, chapter 21. We'll start with just kind of the beginning part uh, to get a feel for where he's going. We'll read the rest of this chapter, or, or most of this chapter. Yeah, the whole thing. We're going to read the rest of the chapters and move through the morning. But just starting off, I'm going to read 5 through 9. So starting in verse 5, chapter 21. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, this is Jesus, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. He's going to give us more details. Uh, different theologians argue uh, to what degree he's mixing up the chronology, to what degree he's laying out the chronology. I'm going to kind of assume a rough chronology here of events unfolding, but just so you know, there's all kinds of disagreement among Christians about this. So what I'm going to try to do as we teach the text is focus on what does Jesus tell us to do about it? Like, so what? What do we do? So what? Jesus is Lord. So what? What do we do about this? What do we do when the world as we know it begins to decay? How, how do we trust Jesus? How do we live in this kind of world where things are falling apart? And so we'll focus on that, but I'm going to pray that his spirit would be with us. This is a tough text, uh, a lot of different directions we could go in. So I want to pray the spirit would come, help us to hear from him, uh, and help me to focus. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We receive it as a gift from you. You give us guidance. Um, this is our solid rock that we stand on. You, you have not just left us uh, abandoned with no direction, but you give us your word. We thank you for that. But even more than that, you give us your spirit. So we pray that your spirit would be present as we teach and dig into your word, that your spirit would guide us to hear from you, that we would hear uh, the authority of your voice, uh, that we would be bound to you, that our trust would be in you and not in all the circumstances that seem to shift like shifting sand. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, big idea. The world as we know it is, is shifting, right? And, and specifically... For these guys, the world as they knew it centered around the temple, right? The text starts off with they were admiring the, the gorgeous beauty of this temple, one of the great wonders of the ancient world. Um, so temples were always a big deal. Most ancient cities had a temple for that city. Israel had a temple for the whole nation, right? So there, there was more invested in it even than other ancient temples, and there was gleaming marble that would reflect the light, that would glisten in the sunlight. It was up on this mountain we call Mount Zion, a, a plateau of sorts, right? And so it's high in the air. The weather's actually nicer. The farther up you get, the closer you get to the temple. My wife and I had the privilege of going last May, and it's like, oh, yeah, I've, I've taught this before, but now I'm experiencing it. It just it feels better up here than it did down in the hot valley, right? So there was this experiential a beauty and awe, and it just, there was gold, it glimmered, there was marble, there were precious stones, it was amazing, it was amazing, this was the reality, and people are like, man, Jesus, look at that, like, our, our people are something special, aren't they, and Jesus is like, man, I got bad news, 
this thing's going down. This thing is going down. We saw a couple of weeks ago, he, he, wa- he wept. He cried. And we talked about how that wasn't just um, eye leaking, you know. It was, it was a big deal. He grieved over the loss. He's not excited about this, but there's a judgment and a destruction that's coming. And it actually happened in AD 70. Jesus was a prophet, and he was a true prophet. And the temple was destroyed in AD 70, just about 40 years after this discussion. And so we have to recognize that's the end of their world, and then we have to recognize also, but that's not the end of everything, right? There's still more history. Here we are living thousands of years past that reality. And so this is the debate that Christians for thousands of years have been debating, like, okay, what's the full chronology? We basically know destruction of the temple, return of Jesus. Those are two things that everybody kind of agrees on, and then we, we start debating what are the other pieces of that puzzle, right? So a lot of people talk about the millennium. The millennium isn't really even in this text. Millennium's in Revelation chapter 20, if you want to go read about that. And generally, Christians organize their views on the end times and the return of Jesus around the millennium. Uh, how much we believe it in it, how much we don't believe it, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and so there are three different views generally, but really there's like a hundred sub-views. So it's not that important. I just want to orient you towards the debate and then say, but what does Jesus tell us to do, right? So just quick orientation to the debate. There, there's one view that says Revelation 20 talks about this thousand years, and Jesus is going to come up, set up shop, and it's going to be something better than now on earth, physical and heavenly, but it's not heaven yet. So that's the premillennial view. A lot of Christians believe that. It's been the most popular view for the last hundred years. Um, but there's another view called amillennialism that says, well, that passage is really kind of poetic, and it's really talking about how there is uh, beauty in the gospel, right? And there's symbolism here, and, and how the devil being chained in that, that chapter in Revelation 20 is kind of symbolic for how the gospel restrains the devil's work here. Yeah, he's still kind of running around, he's, but he's on a long leash, right? He is kind of chained, but he's still there, you know? And so that's the more poetic view, uh, one of the most common views in church history. Uh, those people are real believers, Right? Um, and so that's another view. And then there's this post-millennial millennial view. And that is that, yeah, the, that thousand-year view is more real and physical, this kind of pre-heaven, heavenly thing that's not quite heaven yet. But it's going to be brought in positively by the preaching of the gospel. And then Jesus will return post-millennium. And so these are different debates about when Jesus is coming and what that has to do with the millennium. But here's the thing. We all agree that Jesus is coming. We all agree that our greatest hope is that Jesus is coming. We all agree that we should be busy about obeying Jesus, loving Jesus, loving our neighbors, making the world a better place, telling our friends and neighbors about Jesus and that he's our real hope, submitting to him and looking forward to his return. We all agree on those things. So let's just focus on those things, okay? And then if you want to talk more about the details, buy my lunch, we'll talk more about the details, okay? (laughs) I am happy, like, I love to eat, and I'm happy for you to do that. So, so REM says it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Uh, my thesis is the only way to really feel fine is through Jesus, okay? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll is not really going to make you fine. It's just going to make you feel fine for a little while, but it's not really going to cut it long term, okay? Uh, and so here are three Jesus-y ways to feel fine, okay? Three Jesus-y ways to feel fine. Number one, endure the chaos. Number two, look for Jesus actively, and number three, stay awake, okay? So endure the chaos, look for Jesus, and stay awake. 
That, that's the outline of the text this morning. So number one, endure the chaos. We'll see this in chapter 21, verses 10 through 24. Uh, this passage will call us to not be discouraged by the craziness. He's like, crazy is coming. Chaos is coming. Near term and long term, right? Again, all Christians agree, yeah, there's some stuff that happened there that was crazy. And there's still future crazy for us to endure. So crazy is going to happen. In this world, you will have trouble. But what? Take heart, Jesus says, because I've overcome the world. He says that in the Gospel of John. So endure the chaos by trusting that Jesus is king. Endure the chaos by hoping in Jesus. He makes specific predictions about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and all of these things happened. So what should that do? That should make us endure by a greater confidence in Jesus. Oh, I can trust this guy. I can trust him. He knows what he's saying. So chapter 21, verse 10, it says, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven but before all this they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake let me stop there for a second what had the disciples believed up to this point jesus is going to establish his kingdom in jerusalem he is the messiah they're sure he's the messiah so their understanding of prophecy is like the kingdom's coming now. The millennium or heaven or however you want to describe that, it's happening. He's setting up shop. Here it comes. And they're like, we're, we're, they were vying, right? They were always competing for like, Jesus, can I be secretary of state? And this guy can be secretary of interior, right? Like they were kind of vying for the left and right hand positions. That's what the disciples were expecting. Even though he told them several times, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's not part of the plan. They just kind of sloughed that off, right? They couldn't, they couldn't receive that. And now he's saying, oh, by the way, part of your jobs as being Secretary of State and Secretary of Interior and Secretary of Defense is you're all going to be beat up a lot. So this is not the most encouraging news. He's saying endure this chaos, though. Chaos is coming. Chaos is coming, but endure the chaos. These are our founders. Do you think we can expect things like this? Maybe. I'd say we can expect absolutely to suffer in this world and we're called to endure the chaos of suffering in this world and hope in Jesus above all. We may not be beheaded for our faith. We may not be kicked out of the public square. But we're still going to endure a world of suffering and death. That's the world we live in. So no matter what the future holds, you and I are going to go through hard things that we do not want to go through. And our job is to trust that Jesus is king. Now, part of the hard things we go through, it might be more than just cancer. We might also go through being kicked out of the public square. We might also be persecuted more for our faith. And we're ready for that because Jesus is king. And so that's what he's telling his disciples here, okay? Very specifically, talking to the disciples, what's happening in the near term. But these lessons apply to us as well. So now, talking to his disciples, you're going to get beat up. Hard things are going to happen. Verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. This is it. This is your opportunity to bear witness. Peter says this lesson applies to us, ordinary Christians. Just to be clear, I'm not an apostle. You're not an apostle. We're not these guys. And yet, in 1 Peter 3, he says, oh yeah, you get to do the same thing. When you suffer, and yet you still have hope, 
that's your opportunity to bear witness that Jesus indeed is king. Jesus is my hope. You're going to be suffering and people are going to be like, what's up with you? Like, what's your problem? Why do you have hope? And you're going to be like, well, well Jesus. And they're going to say, explain the post-millennial view and how it is different. No, they're not even going to ask you that, right? They're just going to say, why do you have hope? And you're going to say, Jesus. Jesus is my hope. So here he's telling his disciples, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Now, this one's difficult for a preacher that writes his messages, right? There are whole denominations that say, because of this verse, preachers should not write sermons. Did you know that? I shouldn't study beforehand. I shouldn't, like, look at the text too much. Really, like, if I look at it 30 minutes ahead of time, that's okay. You know, but if it's the day before or the week before, that's, that's meditating too much on what I'm going to say beforehand. I just want to say I think that tradition is silly. I think they're often, like trying to obey the scriptures, right? But what they're taking is they're taking a very specific thing he said to his disciples about, you're going to get beat up, don't worry too much about what you can say, and then they're applying it everywhere. So we just have to be careful about that. You can see how I'm saying some of this applies to us because it gets repeated in 1 Peter 3.15. Suffering's an opportunity to bear witness, but not every single thing, right? Um, and so I would say he's just assuring them, hey, guys, you are my representatives and it's going to be okay. The Holy Spirit is going to give you the words to say. Y you're going to be able to do it. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to meditate beforehand. You don't have to think about it too much, right? You're just going to tell them about me, and the Holy Spirit's going to meet you there. And so we have comfort there, because in the same way, the Holy Spirit meets us as well. It doesn't mean we can't plan a conversation with somebody. It doesn't mean we can't, like, offer a book or meditate on something, right? He's just saying, hey, guys, don't freak out about it. Don't over think it. Don't worry too much. Chapter, uh, verse 15, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Some of you are going to be killed because you're my follower. And then he has this interesting little phrase in verse 18. Look at verse 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Endure. So how does this make sense? If, if some of you are dying, but don't worry about it, not a hair of your head is going to perish. How do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of that? I, I'd say it's the already, but not yet, that, that we already saw in the like, yeah, it's not fine, but it's fine, right? It's not fine, but it's fine. Romans 8, I think, is the most helpful cross-reference. If you just want to go and meditate on Scripture for a little while, Romans 8 is really helpful. It's like, yeah, you're going you're gonna to suffer. We, we're going to groan. We're going to ache. But, but nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Can, can slaughter, can defeat? No. And so in that sense, not a hair on your head will perish. He, he's got you. Right? He, he's talked about Jesus. He's talked about in other places how a sparrow doesn't even fall to the ground apart from the Father's will. So make sense of that. It, the sparrow still dies, <laughs> right? There's still death, and yet he's like, but he's got you. He's got all the hairs on your head numbered. You can trust him absolutely. That's what he's saying. And so again, the New Testament flushes this out for us. Jesus says hard things. Jesus says these bold things. And then we would take the rest of the New Testament letters and say, oh, okay, this, this explains it a little more. And I would say Romans 8 is one of those 
chapters that's an explainer for these kinds of puzzling things that he's saying right here, um, that we will endure through the resurrection. Now, we also get some confusing stuff here uh, in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So now he's getting super practical. I said it's confusing. This is actually the most practical part. He's like, okay, when the armies come, like when Rome sets up and has the barricades and sets up everything, that's your chance to get out. Because you might think, ah, we're going to endure forever because we're God's chosen people. And he's like, no, actually, the temple is going to be destroyed. Now, you can still believe in future promises for God's chosen people, that God's still going to do some interesting things through Israel in the future. I think Romans 11 kind of implies that. I believe that. But here, there's real judgment coming. And he's like, get out of the city. The city is going to be destroyed. Verse 21, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. Don't come into the city, get out of the city. If you see the the armies coming, don't run into the city for safety because the city is going to be destroyed. Verse 22, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. He's saying all the Old Testament prophecies about God bringing judgment because you've been unfaithful, it's happening. It's going to happen again. It had already happened in the past. It's going to happen again. Verse 23, alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against these people. He's, he's aching again, right? He's already wept over this. He's like, this is going to be a big deal. Run away. Get out of the city. Flee. This is important. It's urgent. Verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What does the word Gentiles mean? It's the word ethnos, tribe, nation, people group. It was just a funny Jewish way of saying all the other tribes, right? We're the special God's people tribe, and then there's all the other tribes. He's saying this is the time, I believe we still live in this time, the time of, of all the other tribes coming in to the people of God. This worldwide movement of Jesus. Now we're all entering in. We're all entering in. And Paul seems to be arguing in Romans chapter 11 that there is still a future for Israel passage that Israel is actually going to be jealous that all these people are finding hope in her Savior and more Jewish people will come to faith through that process. And again, that's a mysterious passage of its own. Let's stop here for a second and just focus on the what do we do. I think the big idea is we endure the chaos And the way we endure the chaos, he's saying here, is just recognize that the chaos is an opportunity for you to speak of his lordship, sovereignty, and power over death. That's the opportunity before us. The chaos, and again, whether whether current craziness goes all the way to like the destruction of our nation as we know it, maybe, who knows, or it's just you live a normal, boring life of suffering, and, and you go down with bankruptcy and cancer like everybody else whatever it is we're all going to suffer like we're going to get hit by buses we're going to get run over we're going to get beat up we're going to get robbed we're going to get done wrong we're going to get abused and those are opportunities for us to endure by witnessing to the faithfulness of God that when these bad things happen of course we can be emotionally honest like this is hard and I'm going to cry about it and yet I'm going to hope in Jesus it's not fine but you know what it is fine Long term, it's fine. Jesus has got me. And so that's the, the line that we walk. I grabbed a picture of someone testifying. There's this formal language throughout the New Testament of being a witness, having a testimony. I've told you before, this word martyros, 
uh, we get the word martyr, right? And so in Christianity, being an official witness is merged with getting your head chopped off. That's just, we've merged those two words. And, and this text is one of the reasons we do that. And Christian history is one of the reasons we do that. In passages like First Peter 3, where the technical word martyr doesn't show up, but it's just saying suffering is your way of saying Jesus is Lord. So the most effective evangelists are going to be suffering people. I think that's what he's setting up here. If you want people to see how great Jesus is, it's like, yeah, hard times are coming, but I trust him. And, and we confuse this sometimes because we think, I, I don't know if you're like me, we think there's this great pressure that evangelism means I've convinced, persuaded, and talked my friend into giving their life to Jesus. Not, not really, right? I mean, I get, persuasion is part of that, right? Like, I'm a speaker, so I, I value persuasion. But most of what the New Testament says is just like, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. <laughs> Difficult situation, Jesus is Lord. And then God makes that grow. So evangelism is the process by which God saves people, as we, as we just faithfully say, like, Jesus is Lord, I trust him. Yeah, everything's crazy, but I, but I trust Jesus. And so that's what it means to endure the chaos, is to continue to hope in Jesus. I, I said this, I think this was last week or the week before, I always mix up my weeks, but Spurgeon talks about, we don't, we don't have to defend the lion, we just let the lion out of the cage. You don't have to defend the lion, just let the lion out of the cage. You don't have to know all the millennial views. Just say, Jesus is Lord. You don't have to be able to explain the gospel and have a hundred verses memorized uh, with precision, but you do need to be able to explain the gospel by saying, well, Jesus died for me. He, Jesus rose from the dead. I trust him, right? And so just being able to testify at a, at a basic level, I think homework for you to let that line out of the cage is just get to know Jesus more, Right? Get to know Jesus more. If you want to study apologetics, study apologetics. If you want to study millennial views and theology, study millennial views and theology. Those things can help frame up and put some structure to your understanding of Jesus. That, that stuff is all great. But, but I would say first stop is read the Gospels. If you haven't read the Gospels, read the Gospels. If you don't understand who Jesus is and the way he portrays himself firsthand, read the Gospels. And then we also talk about just the Roman road. We have these little bookmarks in the hallway. And they're just these four or five verses that give a summary of the gospel. Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 6.23, Romans 10.9. It's just step by step. Like, here are the basics of the gospel. We're all sinners, but Jesus initiated. He didn't, he didn't wait for us to stop sinning and then come save us. No, he's like, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then there's this clear distinction of, like, there's a way of trusting myself and sin, and that leads to death. There's a way of trusting Jesus, and that's a free, gracious gift of life. Right? In Romans 10, 9, he's like, you just, you just have to believe. Just confess Jesus is Lord, and you'll be saved. Uh, learn the facts, but the facts aren't what uh, persuade people in the sense of, I know it so well, or I'm so persuasive, or I'm so powerful, I'm going to force people to come to Jesus. No, we're just, we're just letting the lion out of the cage. <laughs> we're just testifying. Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Look at Jesus. Deal with Jesus. Endure the chaos by pointing to Jesus by being a witness. Okay, second point, look for Jesus. Actively look for Jesus as your hope. Look for Jesus. Things are going to get crazier and crazier. Um, we're not going to need an advanced ability to read the end times signs in order to survive. 
Jesus is how we survive. Do you understand the distinction? Again, study it all you want. I, I study these things. I'm a nerd. You can go to my office. I have a bunch of books. You can borrow my books. Like, I like to study things, but in the end, that's not my hope. My hope should be, a, I should be looking up, right? I should be a Jesus. I need you, like, come quickly. That should be our attitude. And as an Americans, too often, we're like, ah, I kind of have a nice life. Could you come back maybe in 50 years, Jesus? I want to live my full American life first. And we should repent of that and be like, Jesus, come come now. You're, you're my hope. We should be looking for Jesus with anticipation, with, with desire, with expectation. So chapter 21, verses 25 through 33 um, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So Son of Man, right in clouds, reference to Daniel 7. We talked about this last week. Uh, The New Testament gives us a divine Jesus by knitting together Psalm 110, Daniel 7. It's a gross oversimplification, but it comes up again and again in the New Testament. So here's this reference to Daniel chapter 7. There's the son of the man, the son of man that's like riding clouds and sharing the throne with Yahweh. And so he's saying, you're going to see me coming on the clouds. Powers of the heavens will be shaken. Uh, And then he says, verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, Because your redemption is drawing near. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you better understand what a blood moon is and how to interpret these signs. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, have a grotesque obsession with all the symbols. And if you don't interpret the symbols rightly, you're going to miss it all. No, he says, straighten up, look up, look for Jesus. Look for Jesus. That should be our obsession. So again, I don't want to confuse things. Study theology. Understand theology. For me, theology has been a way where I make more sense of the story of the Bible, but the point is Jesus, right? And so if if that's the route you're going, yes, study it, understand it, so you can better understand the book, but look for Jesus. Your hope is in Jesus, not the signs, not blood moons, not interpretations. Your redemption is drawing near. And then he told them a parable. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree. And then he's like, oh, look at all the trees, all right? He's talked about fig trees in the past. He's just like, okay, we're just talking about all growing plants, okay? Fig trees, all plants. He says this, verse 30, as soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know the kingdom of God is near. So again, this is confusing. I think we often are so confused about So is it this week, right? Like, is it this thing on the international stage? Is it Russia or China or this or that? You know, like, and and we want to know exactly. I think what he's saying is is it's like going to be common sense. He's not saying you have to be an expert in the science. He's just saying, you know, it's like when a leaf pops out, then, you know, it's growing season and like it's happening. Here we go. (laughs) He's just like, it's that simple. So again, it's, it's look for Jesus. I think he's saying to not overthink it. He's just like, it's, it's really simple. You know, like you go outside, you see a green leaf. You're like, oh, it's springtime. Okay, moving on. He's not like, now calculate this number and multiply it by that number and then look at the stars. And, you know, like it's just like, 
Things are going to be crazy, and it's going to happen fast. It's going to happen really fast. Look for Jesus. Look for Jesus. When things start unfolding, when everything's falling apart, you're going to be like, oh, here it is. You're looking for Jesus. Look for Jesus. 32, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. That's one of the most debated verses in the whole thing. I'll give you my interpretation for this. Let's look at 33 for context. So he says, this generation is not going to pass away until all this takes place. Now verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. But Jesus says, this is crazy, thinking about the identity of Jesus. My words will never pass away. So he's saying, I believe, leaves come, you know, you know you're in that season, here it goes. And then he says this generation, verse 32, this generation will not pass away until this has taken place. I think the most obvious way to take that is the generation who sees the leaves pop out is going to see summer come. It's going to happen fast. I think that's all he's saying. I think we've overthought it way too much. And we're like, this generation, he means the people he's talking to right now. You guys are going to see me return. And, oh, he didn't, so we don't, can't believe the Bible anymore. I, I don't think that's what he's saying, right? I believe the Bible. I don't think the apostles would have put that in here <laughs> if we thought that they were all wrong and everything was confused, right? I think he's just saying, this generation that sees the leaves pop out is also going to see the summer come. It's just going to be one generation. Like, it's just going to happen quickly. I, I think that's all he's saying. I think that's all he's saying. Now, just so you know, there's 12 other views on that verse. Go figure them out. Argue with me if you buy my lunch. That's cool. Um, I think the main idea is look, look for Jesus. Your redemption's drawing near. Look up. Straighten up. Here comes your redemption. And so there should be this weird excitement we have of like, yeah, it's the end of the world as we know it. Oh, Jesus is coming. Jesus, that's the point. The world as we know it. The apostles say this again and again in the New Testament letters. It's like fading away. This world we're in, it's fading away. And Jesus is the point. His return is the point. That's the thing that we're looking forward to. I grabbed a picture of a kid with a telescope. And this is just kind of a play on the image here. Are you looking up at the signs? Are you doing your multiplication tables with the symbols and the signs and the stars and the blood moons? Or are you looking for Jesus? I think that's the contrast. Now, again, and I want to be careful. I don't want to belittle people that have gone, you know, 100 feet deep into signs and symbols and revelation. There is glory and beauty in reading and understanding the scriptures. I just want to clarify, your understanding of the scriptures is not what saves you. Jesus is what saves you. That's the difference. Study the scriptures more. Go deeper. But the signs and symbols won't save you. Jesus is what we're looking for. Look for him to save you, not false saviors. So Titus 2 is really interesting. This makes this applicational. So how do we do this in an everyday way? Titus 2 says, the grace of God has appeared, past tense, bringing salvation for all people. So that's the death and resurrection of Jesus, saves us. And that's what is our hope. And it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. So Paul's writing to Titus, a leader in the church in Crete, one of the most horrible like pirate islands that existed in the first century. Terrible place of sin, right? So think of just the worst, most grotesque sins of our society, and that's where Titus is pastoring. 
And he's reminding them, hey, the hope is Jesus. And you know how your crazy pirate congregation is going to be trained to be godly? Hoping in Jesus, looking to Jesus. That's actually what's going to train them. Looking back to Jesus, focusing on him. He's Lord, hoping in him. That's what teaches us to live godly lives in this present crazy age. Verse 13, then he clarifies this. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, that's the world we live in. The more we hope in Jesus, the less we hope in our false saviors. The more I look to Jesus, the less I look to drinking as the thing that's going to save me. The more I look to Jesus, the less I look to career as the thing that's going to save me. The more I look to Jesus, the less I look to sexual immorality as my salvation and my hope, or pleasure in any sense, or shopping, or just distractions, or TV, or entertainment. There's a, there's a million false saviors out there. The more we look to Jesus, the more we're actually going to be trained to live godly lives that are worth something to other people. The more we're actually going to start to care about other people and get out of ourselves, right? And serve and, and love and care. So, do you know what he says to you? Are you looking for Jesus? Are you paying attention to his words? Have you read his book? Are you familiar with it? Do you care? Or are you looking elsewhere? If we're looking for Jesus, you're gonna, we're going to find what he says here. And our hope in him is going to train us to begin obeying what he says for us to do here. Okay, third point. Stay awake. Stay awake. Wake up. Okay. Stay awake. We'll finish this quickly. This is the last little tiny part. Um, stay awake. He's promised us it's going to be hard, and he's promised us that we can continue to hope in him, right? So stay awake. Uh, if you're heading on a long drive, you have to drive overnight. Do you, do you kind of get yourself ready for that? Like, oh, this is going to be hard. I'm going to have to take extra efforts to stay awake, right? I'm going to drink a little more caffeine, uh, or I'm going to like blow cold air in my face. I'm going to slap myself, whatever it is that you do, right? And you're going to take extra efforts to, to be like, okay, i got to stay awake. It's going to be hard, but i got to stay awake. That's the age we live in. We live in the age of like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if he's coming back. I'm just going to, I don't know. I'm getting, I'm getting sleepy, right? And I said this a few weeks ago. A lot of people liked it. Napping is a good and righteous thing, okay? <laughs> I, still, I still believe that. I'm a napper. He's talking about spiritual wakefulness, right? He's talking about spiritual wakefulness. So let's look at verses 34 through 38. Last little section. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down, sluggish, sunk, heavy. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts start to be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. So he just said drunkenness in two ways, and then he added in cares of this life, right? So irresponsible people, don't get drunk, don't get drunk. And then he added, cares of this life. Responsible people, cares of this life will weigh you down too. Saying no matter which way you run, whether you're uh, the most responsible upstanding Eagle Scout in the room or you're the drunkard that stumbled in this morning, saying either way are ways that we fall asleep. Isn't that weird? Those of you most responsible people in the room, he's saying one of the ways you can fall asleep is by over-worrying about the cares of this life. Sometimes you just go stop. Be like, Jesus is Lord. Did I work a full day? Okay, I got to stop now. I got to let go. I can't do it all. I can't, I can't be perfect. Okay, 
So he says, these things will, will weigh you down. Watch, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So the return of Jesus can either come to us as our greatest hope or a trap. He's advising that we stay awake as it's my greatest hope and not turn and say, this is my greatest hope, this life, this distraction, these cares, this empire I'm building, these are my greatest hopes. He's saying, no, keep Jesus as your greatest hope. Watch out that it doesn't come as a trap. Verse 35, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Pray that you'll have strength. Pray you'll escape these things. You'll stand before the Son of Man. Now, again, depending on your end times views, there's some really technical ways to interpret these verses. I'm just going to take them in the general ways that are repeated through all of Scripture. There's a kind of watchfulness that says, my hope is in Jesus, not in all these other things. My hope is in Jesus, not dissipation. My hope is in Jesus, not drunkenness. My hope is in Jesus, not the cares of this world and this age. Verse 37, and every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. This is often called the Olivet Discourse. There's a much longer version of this in Matthew 24, shorter version in Mark 13, where he's explaining these things to his disciples. So as he kept teaching, verse 38, and early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So these are the last days of Jesus. He's teaching every day in the temple. He's teaching every day in the, in the temple. This beautiful, glorious place. He's teaching, he's teaching, he's teaching. The early church set up shop in the temple. They used the temple. They had this great facility. It was a lot like the Western church. It was a lot like wealthy Western churches with big, huge facilities. And he used those facilities, man. He taught there and he taught there and he taught there. And I think we need to recognize if this is the end of Western civilization and we don't have big churches anymore, Jesus is like, it's going to be fine. I also think this teaches us an opposite lesson of it's okay to teach in the big mega church, right? And so there's this corruption and judgment that's coming upon the temple. He's like, oh yeah, in 40 years, this, this temple, the mega church of Israel is going to be destroyed. But what did they do until it got destroyed? They taught there. <laughs> and so I think this is a good lesson for us. In today's world, some people are like, man, the church is so corrupt, we need to pull out. Or mega churches are always evil. Or buildings are always bad. Or, you know, and I'm like, that's the Western world. We have buildings. I just feel like y'all are going to listen to the Bible taught more with climate control than without it, right? And then if the end of the world comes as we know it, we're still surviving in the underground church, that's fine. We'll make do. We're going to keep following Jesus. But as long as we've got buildings, we're going to use buildings. So that's kind of the attitude of Grace Bible Church. We don't have to be an underground church until we're forced to be an underground church. Does that make sense? We're just going to take advantage of these opportunities. And so here he says, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. So don't be heavy-hearted. Don't be pulled down. Don't be dragged down by drunkenness and distractions and the cares of this world. I, I grabbed a picture of how to escape from quicksand. Um, when I was a kid, I grew up, because of the movies and the TV shows I watched, thinking that quicksand was like the number one thing I had to watch out for in life. <laughs> like, man, this world is full of quicksand. And like, if I go east, if I go north, if I go west, there's going to be quicksand, and I've got to watch out, okay? 
Now, I've never actually run across quicksand. I'm about to turn 51. I've never seen it, never seen quicksand. Now, it is true. I Googled this. Quicksand does exist. It just turns out it's not as common of a problem as I thought it was as a kid, okay? But if you do fall into quicksand, it's important that you don't panic. You don't struggle too much. You can lay down, roll over, swim across the top, right? Don't let all the pressure trap your feet. There's wise things that you can do if you get trapped in quicksand. It's just an illustration. Let's, let's switch back. Put that off the screen. <laughs> Here's the illustration. Jesus says there are things that are going to like cling on to you. You're going to be like, ah, I can't let go, right? Stay awake. And how do we stay awake? We're watching for Jesus. And he puts in this key word here. It's a key application. This is going to be the application of our, of our point. You see it in verse 36. He says, stay awake praying that you can have strength to escape. Pray. When the panic comes, pray. When things start to fall apart, pray. When your foot gets stuck, when you're like, I can't, I didn't think this would happen to me. Like, I'm, I thought I was one of the good people. Pray. Pray, and he will meet you there. One of my life verses is Philippians 4. I, I can be anxious sometimes. It says, don't be anxious, but pray. Don't continue in your anxiousness, but pray. When the anxiousness comes, pray. And the peace of God, which transcends all our understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. He will supernaturally meet us there in the quicksand, in the dissipation, in the drunkenness, in the cares of this world. You might be caught in a cycle of addiction that you cannot let go of, and you're sinking deeper and deeper in that quicksand. Pray. Ask a friend for help, right? I love the, the dual nature of confession in the New Testament. You see in 1 John that confession is really between us and God, right? We confess our sin. If we're honest about our sins, he'll save us. But then James carries this over in James 5 and says that's an ongoing habit. You do. You confess your sins to one another and you pray for each other so that you can be healed in an ongoing way. So there's once and for all salvation in Jesus. Just pray he'll save you. You're going to be all right. And then there's the like, huh, I'm, I'm stuck again, <laughs> right? Pray for each other. Confess your sins one to another. Find Christian community. Pray for each other and you will be healed. Okay, we'll wrap up here. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That's what REM said. I think they uh, didn't have the same hope that we have. The end of the world for the disciples before the destruction of the temple was the death of Jesus. And Jesus very carefully prepared them for this in the last few chapters of John. Uh, John gives us the most of those inside discussions that Jesus had right before he goes to the cross. In chapters 13 through chapter 17, it's beautiful. I encourage you to read those sections. Chapter 14, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust me. And he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, right? Like, I'm going to disappear. You don't really understand what I'm saying right now. You're in complete denial. You're not even listening to me. But trust me. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. That's the hope that's enabled me to endure. When my world, as I knew it, collapsed, and I felt in many ways like an orphan, God in his grace revealed himself to me. The same way he revealed himself to the apostles. The same way he's revealing himself to you. You're going to feel sometimes like an orphan. 
you're going to feel sometimes like, this is too hard. I'm abandoned. My foot is stuck. I don't know what's going on. What's happening? The things I've been counting on are ending. It's the end of the world as I know it. And he's saying, you're not left as orphans. The Holy Spirit will come in and show you how you can cry out, Abba, Father. You have a Father that loves you. And he proved that by sending his son to die for you, to take your sins upon the cross, and to rise from the grave, to prove that he's conquered sin and death, not just for the world, but for you once and for all. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son, that you are conquering. In this age of the nations, we pray that you would be lifted up, that more and more we would trust in you. And God, we pray that as a people, we would be faithful in this time. Uh, Lord, we, we want to hold out the hope that, that you're it. Carrying the, the torch, carrying the light of your goodness, testifying that Jesus is Lord. Help us, Father, as we see things end that we love, as we see changes happen that make us sad. Help us to see that you're our ultimate hope and that we would pass it on faithfully to the next generation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. of the night kept awake for the morning when our longing turns to sight grace alone through faith alone Christ alone all by faith who heard the call who ran from shame to mercy's heart return again to your first love and find him true as at the star we will walk by the spirit we will stand in the light Hold the flames of the promise that 
The watches of the night kept awake for the morning when our longing turned. Amen. Thank you. I, last minute this week, I was like, oh, Chris, we got to sing your Into the World song. Uh, really appreciate that. The, the chorus, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, that's what communion is about. It is a celebration of that. This is a little thing, a little thing that Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. A really simple thing to act out that our hope is absolutely in Jesus. So that's symbolized through the idea of his broken body and his spilled blood being symbolized in the bread and the cup. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, that it's by his grace alone that you're secure, that it's by what he's accomplished, not by what you've accomplished, by, by you clinging to him, not by any works you've created in your own life, then we invite you to take communion with us as an expression of that faith. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus, we would encourage you to actually make this a time of real deep spiritual reflection. Um, as everybody walks by the tables, come up with everybody else and just don't take the bread and cup. If you're not trusting in Jesus, let's be honest about that. Um, but ask yourself, what it is you're trusting in? There's so many other saviors uh, that are pulling on us. Ask yourself what it is you're trusting in, and we would love the privilege of talking to you more about that. What, what does it mean to, to trust Jesus, to say, Jesus, you're my only hope, and to give your life to him and to begin to walk with him? That's, that's why we're here. We'd love to talk to you about that and walk you through those steps. We're told that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was having a final Passover meal with his disciples. And the Passover was a statement by the Jewish faithful that they believed that God had saved them that God was a rescuing God, a God of grace, a God of redemption. In the midst of that meal and that ceremony, Jesus breaks bread and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he lifted a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so Paul tells us that whenever Christians do this, as we uh, eat this bread, as we drink this cup together, we're actually proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. Amen? Uh, you can stand and we'll rotate left or right clockwise to the tables in front. You can take the elements at the table or back in your seats.
as we take the bread and cup, this is our confession that we're looking up to Jesus, that Jesus is our only hope. No matter what else happens, he's the one that secures us. Amen? Uh, we have a couple more reminders before we walk out the door, things we already announced. Uh, the Resurrection Prayer Guide. This is one of our little efforts to supernaturally unite our church in gospel-centered prayer for ourselves and for the city. I would really encourage you to take advantage of this. If you're still learning the art of prayer, very simple little two-verse prayers for you to pray every day for the next 40 days before Easter. encourage you to grab these. Uh, the Lenten season officially starts Wednesday, but fortunately enough, we're not actually under the authority of the Pope, so you can start it whenever you want to. Uh, but this is built around that schedule. If you want to start Wednesday, uh, that 40-day season, we want to take hold of this season of time when spring is popping, when the leaves are turning green, and devote our hearts to Jesus. Also, we've got a table in the back where you'll meet some of our ministry team members and some of our leaders. It's serve team sign-up day this week and next week. One of the ways, I, I don't want to overstate this, but one of the ways that we declare that Jesus is our hope is by actually serving uh, with the mechanisms of the local church. We exist to declare Jesus is the hope of the city. I'd really love to encourage more of you to get on board, partnering with us to make known the hope that we have in Jesus. Can you do that relationally and casually in your own life? Yes, please do that first. Please do that first. But we also want to appeal to you to join in with the corporate efforts that we're making to let Jesus be known in this place. So there are clipboards in the back. You can sign up for serve teams, get more involved. And in the mechanisms, in the machinery, you can learn how the sausage is made around here. It'll be great. Jesus is Lord. All right, let me send you out. Final reminder. Jesus leaves his disciples. Jesus has left us for a long time, but he says, I'm not leaving you as orphans because I'm going to send you the Spirit so that you can cry out, Abba, Father, Jesus, I trust you. God bless you. You're dismissed.